Hello and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, October the 26th. And for those of you out there who are curious, it is National Pumpkin Day. I am Tom Hollingsworth, your not wearing orange co-host of this episode of the Rundown. And joining me today is my good friend, Mr. Chris Reed. Chris, welcome to the Rundown. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on board today. Uh, not only is it National Pumpkin Day, it is also National Financial Crime Fighting Day, which um, I didn't know that financial crimes needed their own day. I thought we'd probably just lump them in with everything else. But the other thing we're going to be doing today, we're not going to be fighting crime, but we are going to be fighting back against bad news stories because we have a lineup of great news stories that we want to bring to you today. There's a lot of really cool stuff going on in the industry. And thanks to uh, having Chris here, we're going to be talking about some of the really cool stuff, including a, uh, a returning story that we uh, we just can't seem to get rid of. However, though, we are going to start off the episode with a discussion of something kind of exciting. Uh, if you've heard of the Cisco Networking Academy, um, you should know that it's a pretty well-known way to train networking professionals in the IT industry. It is turning 25 this year, which means that not only is it older than two of the Tech Field Day folks that work on the events, it can also legally rent a car. Um, that means that Cisco has been spending over two decades training networking professionals in the IT industry, and they're looking to keep the momentum going over the next 10 years. They want to train 25 million more people. Now, in order to do that, they have uh, introduced a new program that's focused around the entry-level cybersecurity uh, learning path. They want to capitalize on that hot market because I don't know if you know this or not, but ransomware is everywhere. And so they're trying to skill up some people there. They've also introduced something called Skills for All. And it's interesting because that's a program that is focused on being delivered mobile first. It turns out that people are actually using their iPhones and their iPads and anything else to learn things. Who would have thought? Cisco is going to partner with a company called Experis, and they're going to be trying to increase the number of people in these training programs to kind of close the gap between all of the jobs. You know, there's there's obviously a lot of IT jobs out there, and they want to get people involved in those. Um, Chris, I know you've had a lot of experience in the past with, you know, getting skilled up and trained on, on some of this stuff. Is the Cisco Networking Academy still a program you think has a lot of life left in it for people who are kind of just entering the market? Uh, absolutely, particularly if they're starting to do things like this, where there's all right entry level security and then skill the skills for all program. Um, I, I think it's a it's a great concept and uh, trying to uh, expand out to get 25 million people trained up on entry level skills is is fantastic. Um, there's definitely a uh, uh, a skills gap in um, in the IT industry and entry level, so uh, they'll continue to be involved and uh, and continue to be a front runner if they uh, they keep making updates like this. Uh, Rambus is back. Uh, not a typo from 2002. Rambus has announced PCIe 6 subsystem. They're positioning to third-party hardware manufacturers. The Phi spec for the system includes support for CXL3. Chips are capable of cache coherent memory sharing, expansion, and memory pooling. And one of the major selling points for manufacturers is that they don't need to spend valuable time designing a bus that can handle 64 gig of throughput since Rambus built it already. So a Rambus story that doesn't involve patent trolls. Um, what do you think, Tom? <laughs> Hold on, let me do my best Obi-Wan Kenobi impersonation. Rambus. Now there's a name that I've not heard in a long time. Long time. Now, I, it's exciting to me because as you've probably heard, if you uh, watched any of the videos from Tech Field Day last week, or if you are subscribed to the new Utilizing CXL podcast, spoiler alert, you really should be subscribed. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in CXL. And I think it's super exciting because it's giving a lot of people opportunities to um, iterate and build around some interesting things. And this Rambus story is a really exciting way to look at it. 
what they've effectively done is they've built an IO subsystem for systems on a chip. Why is that a thing? Well, it turns out that there's a lot of R&D that's going into the system right now. And that's hard to do. Like, like we kind of take it for granted today with the, the dearth of things that are going on out there, whether it's a mobile phone SOC or whether it's a DPU SOC. A lot of that engineering is a solved problem. So we just take the thing off the shelf and put it in the phone and we, you know, make it, you know, 5% faster and have 10% worse battery life. But in reality, we're looking at PCIe 6, which is, you know, way fast. Like, you know, the quoted spec is, um, you know, 64, it, we, it's 64 gigabits per second of throughput. But you, if you look at the spec, it's actually 64 gigatransport operations. Just quit making up things, guys. Um, this is a lot of throughput. And, and when you're dealing with things that small, it's difficult to deal with. Now, take that and explode it across a bunch of devices for CXL support. Now it gets really hard. And Rambo said, hey, guess what? We figured this out. So rather than going and doing your own R&D, just buy ours. And so I think that that's going to give people a lot of opportunity to kind of plug some pieces off the shelf directly in there, know that it works, and have the support of Rambus to be able to patch out any issues and things like that. So you can just kind of iterate. It's almost like, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, it's almost like the cloud, but for CXL. Why build it yourself when you can pay somebody else to do it for you? So I'm going to be keeping an eye on this, uh, not just because if Rambus really is back, it's time for me to... Uh, break out my Doc Martens and whatever else I was wearing around the turn of the millennium um, and, and get back to some cool old fashioned uh, stuff. Yeah. Get off my lawn, kids. Chris, if you're like me, you're probably getting tired of crappy in-flight Wi-Fi. And uh, news may be on our side here uh, because everyone's favorite Gen X Lex Luthor, Elon Musk, has decreed that Starlink Aviation will bring the SpaceX satellite internet service to your next plane ride. Now, Starlink's aviation system can provide up to 350 megabits per second of throughput for anything you might want to do in the sky, like, I don't know, take a video call, play World of Warcraft, annoy the passengers on the plane. Now, you have to remember, though, that's 350 megabits per second of bandwidth for the whole plane. So remember that you're going to be sharing that with some of your friends. Performance is probably going to vary a little bit. And if you're looking to put this on your own personal ride, like Chris and I have, because of course we, we ride around in private planes, um, it's going to set you back a little bit. So you might want to consider opening a lemonade stand because the fees are reportedly somewhere between $12,500 and $25,000 per month with a one-time hardware cost of $150,000 to install the satellite receiver on your plane. Um, I wonder how long it's going to be before Frontier gets this on their planes. Deliveries are expected to take place starting in 2023, provided somebody actually decides to pay Elon for this service. Chris, you're a Wi-Fi expert. Is Starlink about to take over the Wi-Fi space when it comes to uh, aerial Wi-Fi? Um, it certainly gives uh, gives some options besides what is it, the GoGo in-flight. Um, so uh, I think there's some some great benefits to the the low Earth orbit versus uh, satellite versus some of the other terrestrial options. Um, so, uh, I think we'll see some, some latency improvements and, uh, this is certainly, I think more, uh, more bandwidth available than a lot of the options that we've got right now. Uh, pricing is one of those make or break ones. I I'm not that in tuned with the aviation Wi-Fi industry, so I'm not sure what the, the current offerings have, but that's, uh, if you're, if you're a Southwest or you're a frontier, do you really want to pay at best 13,000 a month? 
per plane in your fleet to uh, to get this. So I, I really think this is going to be for uh, uh, the one percenters with the private planes, and uh, um, I, I think we'll we'll see it on a lot of the private jets uh, here shortly. Um, so next up, we've got uh, US DOJ announced this week they're charging two Chinese men with obstruction related to the ongoing prosecution of Huawei. While the DOJ didn't specifically name the case that these charges were related to, Reuters was able to put the pieces together to determine it based on filing dates. Case against Huawei stems from sanctions placed on Iran that, that Huawei reportedly violated. Two individuals have reportedly been seeking information on the case, such as witness lists and potential trial evidence. Tried to recruit a double agent with the promise of cash payments, jewelry, and Bitcoin. Tom? So this broke yesterday, and I was kind of looking at it because there's this huge press conference. Merrick Garland, the U.S. Attorney General, gets up, and he announces all of these national security implications. And trust me, there were a ton. Um, you know, spy rings in New Jersey that weren't related to mobsters and a bunch of other stuff. And I thought that this story was kind of interesting because effectively what's happened is that we've covered this a number of times on the rundown. The U.S. government really has it out for Huawei. Um I don't know if it's warranted or not, but in this specific case, it's pretty cut and dried. The U.S., along with a number of other countries in the world, sanctioned Iran for a variety of reasons. You can go look those up on Wikipedia. And Huawei effectively lied, not only to the U.S. government, but to a bunch of banks about whether or not they were doing business with the regime in Iran. They were. And they got sanctioned. And they got sued for it. And this has been going on for the last four years. If anybody ever wonders how long it takes for a government case to go through the, the system, this is a pretty good example of it. However, what's happened, as um, mentioned in the complaint filed by the DOJ, is that there were two Chinese nationals who were attempting to illicitly discover information about the case, witness lists, potential evidence. They've contacted a number of people behind the scenes. It just so happened in this one case, they contacted someone who was a U.S. asset posing as someone who could potentially cause people to do bad things. And like it got crazy, like they supposedly passed the national uh, a folder that was clearly marked as classified. Like like this was this was a nice operation to ensnare these two guys. Um, and so what's basically going to happen now is you've got the prosecution of the Huawei case that's running, but then these two guys get prosecuted, not because of anything related to that case, but because they're trying to dig up dirt on that case. And so who knows what's going to happen here? Um, the problem is if you look at this thing as a whole, obviously they picked up several of these people. I think uh, there were like 11 individuals charged in this entire complaint across a bunch of different cases. Only, only like two of them, um, are still out in the wild. Um, the issue is, is that uh, there's no extradition treaty with China. So if uh, if these folks can get out, um, they're not coming back. And so this is uh, I think this is a little bit of a performance for people out there to say, hey, we're not going to tolerate you guys trying to mess with our our justice system here. But I'm actually kind of curious because after we saw um, uh, the Huawei CFO being detained in Canada, uh, a couple of years ago, we, we mentioned that on the rundown, there was a lot of backlash from that. So I'm kind of curious to see where this kind of falls out. Um, I'm sure that we will cover a lot of it on the rundown coming up uh, <laughs> probably into 2023. Chris, Cisco has debuted a new switch this week. It's really, really fast. The Nexus 9232E is built using Cisco Silicon One. Now that's their fab process and it allows them to build these flexible systems that don't need to have single dedicated ASICs across the entire line. They can be programmed to handle a bunch of modules 
uh, using things like P4. Now, the G100 processor that they put in this switch is capable of 26.5 terabits per second of throughput. It's not the fastest one out there, but it's also not the slowest one. Um, there's also a new module for this that's based on 800 gigabit Ethernet. Yeah, that's right, 800 gigabit Ethernet. In fact, this switch can handle 32 ports of 800 gig E. It can handle a lot more ports of a lot slower gigabit Ethernet with breakout cables and things like that. Um, the uh, it, It's kind of amazing that they're aiming this at the very large enterprise and the hyperscaler, and they actually have a version of the switch that's basically just rebadged for service providers. Um, I would like my service provider to have an 800 gigabit Ethernet backbone. Um, uh, I think that might things make things a little bit easier. Uh, but Chris, you know, what's exciting to you about this switch? Um, I, this is exciting for uh, for a couple of reasons. So there's there's the 9232E, um, and then there's the sister sister product, the 8111. Um, that the 8111 is that bare bones one where you're rolling your own OS. So I think that one's where where it's playing into hyperscale. Um, and the 9232E is is probably the uh, the the service provider and uh, and large enterprise. Uh, there are other 800 gigabit switches out there. Uh, this is the only one, to my knowledge, that supports breakouts down to 100 gig. So up to 256 ports of 100 gig in one U. So if you are a uh, large enterprise and you've got colo space that you're paying for and you're paying per uh, per RU, 256 ports in a U is uh, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, so I think they're going to be very excited to see that. Uh, I, I just like... I like the flexibility options in a lot of switches when they when they come along. So this one, if you're going to 400 gig, if you're going to 800 gig, but you're not there yet, you can swap this out and, and support your existing 100 gig infrastructure with this. Um, it's just a very modular, very cool product. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of excited about it too. Um, the, eventually, we're going to get to terabit Ethernet, and that's that's you know magical time because uh, it's not going to look anything like 10 meg Ethernet, but we're still going to call it that. All right, Chris, we had a closer look story that we wanted to take a, a little bit of a dive into this week. And it's one of my favorite stories because uh, it's the one that never seems to fly away because it's circled back once again. Um, our friends over at the Federal Aviation Administration, um, they have asked the FCC once more to delay the deployment of C-band 5G frequencies around airports. No, this is not a repeat from a month ago or four months ago. It's a new letter that was sent in and it has a line of reasoning in it that says that flights could still be disrupted because of the potential impact of those frequencies on some older plane altimeters. Now, here's where the story is an interesting wrinkle, because the FAA now states that even though they are burning the midnight oil to include radio frequency shielding around these planes, basically their entire fleet, there is still the potential that it might not shield them from every spurious transmission. Hmm. Okay. Even though they told us that it would. The other question that's come up in some of the reading on this is whether or not the FCC can change the rules around the spectrum allocation after it had already been auctioned off to the companies that purchased it. So, you know, we auctioned the spectrum allocation off for 5G, and now the FAA is coming back and saying, no, 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 you can't use this section because it has a potential impact. The large cell providers, AT&T and Verizon, have agreed to a moratorium on this, and the FAA has reportedly wanted to make this permanent. The This letter is kind of maybe aimed a little bit more closely at some of the smaller providers that aren't um, playing by the FAA's rules. Chris, 
you're a wireless guy. You know a lot about this space. I want to get your take on this because you haven't had a chance to weigh in on it yet. Is there, is the FAA being unreasonable? Is the FCC not being um, reasonable enough? How is this going to impact not only U.S. air traffic, but also international travelers? Because right before this uh, went into effect, this moratorium, we saw a lot of international airlines cancel flights into the U.S. because they were worried about potential safety impacts. Um, uh, yeah, so this one, uh, a lot of government agencies have pretty wide leeway when it comes to public safety. So uh, so I don't really think it's a concern, particularly if it's a temporary moratorium while they try to, to figure out what's what's going on. I don't think it's going to be a large issue that they're they're trying to put a pause on some of this rollout. Um, so ultimately, the the problem comes down to that the the space for this uh, this spectrum that the cellular providers are using, um, and the, the the spectrum for those altimeters, um, they are relatively close. Um, and when you we talk about adjacent channel interference, that um, you've got to talk about physical proximity, spectral proximity, and power. So these have relatively high power, and in the areas that are near airports, um, that they're relatively close in physical proximity. So th- that's what they're trying to to solve. Um, to solve for. Europe has already resolved this, that they had a wider space between those two spectrums. Uh, they had a, a guard interval, if you will, or a guard guard band um, there between them, where it's a little bit shorter within the US. Um, I really don't know what's going to happen here, whether it's just, a, hey, this, this little space, we're going to widen up a little bit, we're going to take some of that spectrum away. Um, and I don't know if because of the spectrum off auctions, they're going to refund some of that money back. Um, but it's, uh, it's one that'll, I think we're going to continue to see some, um, some updates and some, some progress in, um, even into, into next year. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, that's, what's going to end up happening because again, we're dealing with the U S government, which moves at the speed of a very stunned drunk snail when it comes to these things. And as I mentioned in my, uh, conversations episode about Wi-Fi 6E being safe, uh, because we're seeing something in the Wi-Fi 6E space as well. Um, a lot of this is kind of just scrambling. The FAA got caught flat-footed. They knew this was going to be a, a potential issue. But rather than making their um, their planes, their airlines, install these RF shields, they just hoped that maybe they could solve this with paperwork. And they didn't. And so we're, you know, they're they're hoping now that they can get it done. Of course, you know, there's always that boogeyman of, well, even this might not be enough. So what we're going to do, if you don't play by our rules, is we're going to impose what we can do as a regulatory body. And we may have to do things like not fly planes when there's bad weather, um, not fly planes at night, because if there's a possibility of this being an issue, who knows what might happen? I know what might happen. The same thing that happens if you don't immediately turn your cell phone off whenever the door closes. Very little. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking the devil's advocate position here. But when you look at the fact that AT&T and Verizon have voluntarily decided to, um, I don't know, put a moratorium on the deployment of these frequencies around airports, there's this discussion of, you know, you can't have any uh, radio frequency towers that are tilted up that might possibly interfere with a plane on approach. Like, it seems to me like the, the carriers are doing everything they can to allay these fears, but it's still not enough because... Ultimately, what does the FAA want? Do they want them to completely ban these frequencies around the airports? Then what? Because I'll tell you what will happen. If there is ever an accident involving 
a plane with one of these faulty altimeters or one of these older altimeters, they're still going to try to blame it. They're going to say, oh, well, there was a spurious transmission in this band that must have caused that problem. No, you guys have worked your tails off to ban them. This is more on you. And I said this in my Wi-Fi 6E video. You can only force the manufacturers and the vendors and the providers to do so much. It's on you now to look around and go, how do we fix this problem from our end? Because you can't just count on people shutting things off to fix problems that you don't want to fix. If these planes are too old, replace their altimeters. If you can't replace their altimeters, guess what? Time to upgrade the plane. Send it to the boneyard in Arizona and get them one of those new fancy planes. Because there, there shouldn't be an issue where technology, which marches along a lot further in IT than it does in aviation, is being held back because suddenly you guys can't get your stuff wired to get your altimeters fixed. I, yeah, I mean, ultimately, this should not have been a surprise to the FAA that this this um, spectrum allocation has been 15 years in the making. Um, so this is something that that should have been planned for um, and should not have been the problem come the day that that spectrum was, was auctioned off. So uh, I, I'm really surprised that we're at the spot that we're at at the moment. Um, and uh, I mean, Europe, Europe certainly seems to have done a better job with it by having some of those um, um, spectrum use and, and spectrum planning rules in place um, ahead of time uh, without the need for some of the, the altimeter upgrades. But here, and you, you bring up an interesting point there, because this is a thing that we're constantly seeing ongoing in, in these two different spaces. The Europeans have a much tighter control over the way that things work. All you have to do is read any news story about the fact that they are going to mandate that all new mobile phones have to use a USB-C interface. They can do that. They can just flat out say, we will not certify anything for operation in this union if it doesn't follow our rules. They did it for mobile phones. They've done it for, I don't know, like shipping containers, and they're doing it for these 5G bands. They're at, they're making sure that you add guard bands. It makes total sense from a regulatory perspective. But one of the things that was cited in the, in the linked Reuters article was the fact that most people don't think that the U.S. has that capability. They do. They just choose not to use it. And the other problem that we run into, as we've seen over the last few years, is that the FCC tends to vacillate back and forth depending on which party is in power in the White House. So you can have a very strict interpretation of net neutrality under one president, and then a year later when a new president comes in and appoints some new FCC commissioners, suddenly you have Ajit Pai deciding it's the Wild West. And then when Ajit Pai and his comically oversized coffee cup leave office, then you have Jessica Rosenworcel, who's taking a more measured approach to it. But still, what's to stop this from being another issue in three more years when there's a new president or when there's a, a different uh, group in Congress who's now you know, saying, we don't want you to do that. Cap capitalism deserves to be free. And I don't want to get on a political soapbox here, but, but you know, how, how can we how can we um, reconcile these two things? The Europeans have a very tight standard, uh, strict control on things, and that's how it has to be. And the U.S. is like, just don't crash a plane, guys. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, th there has to be stricter controls, I think, ultimately, that that uh, it's there's only so much spectrum available that that can go any reasonable distance. Um, and there are a lot of different players that are that are vying for that spectrum um in a lot of different uses so uh there has to be stricter controls and it has to be consistent um administration to administration to administration and that's not just an issue across the faa i mean we, when we talk about things like nasa and long-term projects that those budgets uh 
uh, come and go depending on um, the administration that's in uh, um, that's in power. So uh, th- that's the kind of stuff when you when you start to look at long term planning, uh, the consistency across administrations will become more and more important. Yeah, I agree. You have to have consistency. You have to have you know similarity through everything. And realistically speaking, one of the ways that you can get that is through here at the rundown for here with West the Gestalt IT because we are here every Wednesday at twelve thirty Eastern time bringing you great news. Um, we have a couple of things coming up in the next couple of weeks that you might be interested in. Um, they're on their tech field day events. So Stephen Foskett will be bringing you storage field day 24 coming up November 2nd and 3rd. Um, you can find out more details on that at techfieldday.com. You can also uh, check out details around security field day, which is my next event, which will be happening November 16th through the 18th. Um, there's a lot of great presenters. There's a lot of great um, technology that's going to be discussed. And honestly, there's a lot of great delegates that are going to be a part of it. Um, Chris, if people want to learn a little bit more about some of the stuff that you're working on, where can they go to find that out? Um, you can find me on Twitter at the CM read or uh, blog off And if you want to follow some of the stuff that we're doing, you can always follow at Gestalt IT on Twitter. You can also go to our website, gestaltit.com. You can check out our YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Gestalt IT video, um, where you will find episodes of the rundown as well as our other things like the on-premise IT podcast, uh, utilizing CXL. You will also find uh, conversations and checksum and a lot of other great video content. We will be back next week with another great episode of The Rundown. So make sure that you are subscribed to the YouTube channel. Or if you prefer to get your news in podcast form, make sure you uh, use your favorite podcast application of choice and just look for the Gestalt IT Rundown. But we'll be back with more great stories and we hope to see you soon. So have a great week. Mm-hmm.